0: Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientists. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season i'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful irish company called biosciences limited who are the main thermal fisher distributors in ireland and i'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast professor alan kelly is my guest on the podcast today so alan is a professor in the school of food and nutritional sciences at ucc with research interests into the processing and preservation of food and dairy products in particular. And among the many accolades and interests that I could list, Alan is the author of two books with a third on the way on food science and science communication. And in 2020, he was named UCC Research Communicator of the Year. And so with that in mind, I'm just really excited to delve into the world of food and dairy science with you today, Alan. Um, So thanks a million again for, for coming on the podcast.
1: Great. Thanks a bit, Megan, and, and thanks very much for inviting me, and I've really enjoyed your podcast today, and I'm looking forward to having a chat.
0: Great. Um. So, yeah, I really want to start back on, you know, what were you like as a child and in school and... Did you always have interest in science and, and, you know, how things work?
1: Okay, well, I I can go uh, kind of all the way back, I guess. And it's kind of one of the ironies of my life is that, you know, I ended up studying dairy science and studying, you know, products to come out of cows and milk quality and things like that. But I grew up very far from cows. I grew up on the north side of Dublin. I grew up in Glasnevin, quite near the Botanic Gardens. Uh, And I went to school in in Bedevan and Finglas. And when I was in school, I was always very um, interested from a very early age. I was very interested in science. And I, I actually don't know why, and I've tried to ponder as to why, because I was the youngest of a family of six, uh, and my other siblings were did education or into health, or into banking, and my father was a, a building society manager, so there was no science background in my family uh you know we had a kind of i guess a a, you know a reasonably comfortable uh, well educated kind of growing and we're encouraged to explore our own interests but i don't know exactly why but i do remember pretty young doing things like like being fascinated when you'd see somebody with a white coat on the tv like i literally it sounds like a cliche but i remember making labs out of lego you know it was i never had a doubt that i was going to study science right through school like when i did my leaving search i did biology physics and chemistry you know i i was just no question. I was okay. an art for, because I've always enjoyed kind of creativity and that side of things as well. You know, English and art would be my favorite kind of non science subjects, which maybe have been reflected in some of the other things I've become involved in over the years. But it was then a question of what I'd study. Like I think my first scientific interest, for some reason, I think it was ecology. And I loved nature and I loved, you know, the idea of studying how ecosystems, the idea of ecosystems for some reason really excited me. And I thought I'd be a kind of a classical biologist early on. But I, I guess I had an interest. I had a very good physics teacher in, in school, uh, George Porter, who wrote a lot of, he wrote the physics textbook we were studying from at the time. And I was always quite like maths. And I kind of had a kind of a hankering towards kind of the maths engineering side as well. And I had a cousin who was, in fact, a Trinity graduate called of Kelly. She's now in, in, in Canada who left Trinity in the early 80s and beat Came to, went to what was a new institution called NIHE at the time, National Institute for Higher Education, to set up a program called biotechnology. From various family events and kind of you know family interactions, I meet mean, Neve and talk to her, and I was like, you know, she was kind of pointed to talk to him because he's interested in science, but so we don't know what to tell him to do, you know, it's that <laughs> kind of a, a situation. So Neve kind of persuaded me that that this new program, which was about kind of industrial applications of biology, was something that I might be interested in. And uh, as it happened, she had left the uh, DCU by the time I, I actually joined the program. But, you know, she pointed me in the direction. So I joined. Well, it, you know, DCU was it, it was, it's now DCU, obviously. It was in NHL Dublin at the time. We were in third year in college before it was made university status. I tell you, there was some party the night. I'll never forget the night the DCU became a university. And the president, Daniel Herd, at the time, threw a party for all the staff and students, a campus wide party. It was just, a night, to, a night to remember or not to remember, as the case may be. But so, yeah, I, I studied that. It was about the industrial applications of biology. So we learned about, you know, classical cell biology. And we did courses in immunology and in, in pharmaceuticals and in animal cell culture and fermentation and food. So food was one of the, because food is, if you like, the oldest kind of application of industrializing biology. If you think about it, we might come back about that later but you know so food for some reason kind of grabbed my interest it hadn't kind of before i went to college i didn't study food science obviously i studied biotechnology and for some reason i was drawn to the idea of work and i still am i'm drawing to something where the problems are so tangible And where the time scales are short and that might sound like a kind of a trite observation but i always come back to the fact that you know food science might be the grandest you know compared to some of the great societal challenges we could argue that we could we could be studying out of biotechnology but i just i was drawn to the idea of something where you could do something in the lab which literally had an impact directly within a matter of days or weeks because you know i always say food science is the branch of science where the distance between fundamental and applied is the shortest yeah. And that just grabbed me because even the most fundamental thing I do is part of a big picture that is a very short term implication, you know, and yet. To me food science is full of full of really interesting scientific challenges and complexity it's not superficial it's not you know there's plenty of depth for the scientifically engaged mind to, to dive into but yet everything is still tagged to something very tangible and that just kind of grabbed me in college i spent six months in third year we had to do intra-industrial training i did six months in in a brewery i worked in the, the heart brewery in dundalk which isn't there anymore i lived in dundalk for six months working in the brewing plant and i loved it i thought this is this is great and it kind of firmed up for me that i wanted to, i wanted to work in food it firmed up to me specifically that i wanted to be a guinness brewer but that didn't work out <laughs> i went through in final year applied for a small number of jobs in food and two of them were in brewing and one of them was in in dairy i got to the final stages of the geo recruitment process but i didn't get there. Clearly, and uh, I got an offer from a food company, so I decided. Right, I packed up my bags and I went and worked in the food industry for a while.
0: That's so interesting. So you, you, you did. You were thinking of being a, a brewer then. That it could have been a completely different. Oh place. yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I, I worked. In fact, I did my four-year project with Dr. Warwick Walsh, who's now the head of the Irish University's Quality Board on fermentation. It was fermentation of whey, actually, with a mobilized cell yeast culture. And oh yeah, I was after working for a brewery for six months, I was convinced I was going to be a brewer, and it was a funny case that i applied for a job in bass which was a big english brewer in college because they come into college and i remember they called very few people for interview and i went for an interview and it was a terrible interview and because all he wanted to talk to me about was he started talking about movies and I've, I'm very interested in movies. So we got into an argument about movies that seemed to take up and it was seemed to be the only thing we talked about in the interview. <laughs> I thought that was a terrible interview. And I never heard from them again. <laughs> and, I, and I used to go into DCU and say, you know, you was know, there any word from Bass after that interview? When did they say no? And how did they say no? And they'd say, no, we didn't hear anything. And eventually a letter arrived, because it was obviously in, just in the late 80s, the early 90s, is the pre-internet days, a letter arrived at home months later saying you know we invited you to all of these things and you know we're giving you one more chance to come over for your final interview so I'd obviously succeeded but at that point I'd already taken another job and it's too late so then in parallel universe I'm a brewer in England apparently you know (laughs) that's you know I guess one of the things that that I'm a great believer in and we can talk about is the role of kind of just weird luck and weird chance and how we can make the best laid plans we want but the universe has other ideas. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more sure to, to defeat your plans than making a plan in the first place, I think, sometimes. <laughs> because, like, I got a job. Uh, I won't go into detail about it, but let's just say it was a really bad decision. Okay. Uh, I was made out for industrial R&D. I went and worked in the food industry. I was clearly not an applied, you know, food food scientist. A, for Let's say a very kind of demoralizing to a certain extent and kind of rude awakening kind of a, an experience for me. But I always say, so, you know what? And it's one, again, one of my kind of lessons from life is, you know, you know, bad things happen for good reasons sometimes, you know, because basically I decided I think I need to go back to college. I think Mm -hmm. I I need the safety of college life. I need to go to, but I wanted to stay in food. And everybody who I met, everybody who worked in this company was a UCC graduate. And they said, well, if you want to go see, if you want to go and study food at postgraduate level, you go to UCC. Mm -hmm. And where's Cork? You know, I I grew up on the north side of Dublin. I've been to a U2 concert in 1987, I think. My my sister, who's an occupational therapist, lived in Cork in the early 80s, and I visited her once. I knew nothing about Cork. I knew nothing about music. So when it became clear I wasn't going to stay with the company I was with, I started exploring my options, and I went to a few colleges. uh, And I literally, you know, it was the end of the year, it was around November, and I had a copy of my Fortune project in my hand and a copy of my CD, and I just went to colleges and knocked on doors. And I said to people, you know, any interest in taking a, a kind of a, a lovely Dubliner who needs post-grads? You know, let's say I went to some colleges and I got what I would describe as a not a very welcoming. And I often think because actually the first one I went to was UCC. And in UCC, I met so many people because I guess I got names. I'd had a wish list of people I should talk to. And I remember I went there and uh, there was one person at the end of the list. And he was a professor called John Foley, who's professor of dairy technology. And I've been to see various people and several people had expressed an interest in finding funding for me. And I just thought this is wonderful. The last person who was on the list was uh, was John Foley. And I was I remember where I was outside the science building, UCC, and there's a little kind of stone monument. And I sat there and it was five o'clock on a November day and it was dark and it was raining. And I thought, right, am I going to head away now? And I, I looked at the list and there was one name on the list. And I said, look, I'll chance it. And i went back in and he was locking up his office and he his coat and his hat on and he kind of looked up at me and he said who are you and i said would you mind chatting with you for a few minutes and i went in and i remember i actually remember thinking might as well get hung for a sheep as a lamb was yeah. the phrase that was in my head and i decided to go back in and like within so i didn't know if i get something solid out of that i had a good chat with him And I went away, I went to other colleges and didn't find anywhere near the kind of welcome I had at UCC. And I often think if I'd left UCC till later, I might have given up and thought I wasn't going to get something. Mm. So again, it was just pure luck that I went there first. And then uh, John Foley rang me about two weeks later and said he'd managed to persuade somebody by Research Ireland at the time to fund a PhD and how could I start. Wow. And and I was in Cork two weeks later. It was, you know, I took a wrong turn to industry, but it put me onto the right path to get me to UCC. And I wouldn't have gone from DCU to UCC if it wasn't for that diversion in the meantime. So, you know, I don't know if that's a helpful lesson, but. So, and, you know, it was also, I'm a great believer in, in luck and being in the right place at the right time because I wasn't aware of it, but John Foley was, uh, he was a, a great supervisor, a great, well, I'll come back to maybe supervision in a minute, but uh, he's a great mentor and he's hugely supportive of me. He passed away uh, two years ago, but uh, uh, he retired. He's retired many years now, but he was close to retirement at the time he took me. I was one of his last students. And as right. soon as I started, having a bit of an interest in, in teaching he was very happy because he was winding down and he kind of started giving me lectures, even while I was a PhD student, i mm-hmm. supervising five year projects for him. So again, it was just luck being in the right place at the right time, showing the right interest and aptitude. And then when he retired, then, well, somebody needs to cover his lectures. Well, this Kelly Fellows there and he's already doing something. So you know to I me, mean? That was another lucky unplanned thing that that meeting with him, going back into the, the office that day, like set me on the path to being an academic because I, I picked the right supervisor at the right time, just by chance, you know. Yeah,
0: so, it, it's, you know, really, so I say it's really interesting, you know, the way you're, you're talking about how your experience in industry, you know, might, might not necessarily have been the best experience for you, yeah. but actually it turned out to be really good because if you had, I suppose, gone straight into academia, you might have always wondered, well, what would industry be like? But you actually had that experience and then you were like, no, no, I definitely know. So maybe it made you all the more appreciative and wanted to be in academia. There was no other grass is greener, yeah, you know. Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't have any doubt about that. Although it was, I would say it was a bumpy start. It was a bumpy start to research, Another, another kind of you know, lesson learned the, the non-linear way. You know, I always think I learned, learned things by, you know, and sometimes I think we have a fridge magnet at home that says, you know, and I quote, uh, how bad is it to be quoting fridge magnets?" But I often quote it because I think it's it's a great sentiment. It says, if you can't be a great example, if you can't be a good example, you'll have to be a terrible wording. And I often think for parts of my career to fit that sentiment perfectly, you know, because I'll say when I started, I like I had a very nurturing, a very but he was a very hands-off supervisor. So he kind of trusted me to do whatever I wanted. And that was a really bad idea for several years because I did. I had all the right ideas and I immersed myself in the topic, but I had no idea how to design an experiment. I had no idea how to do a study. And I spent three years of my PhD kind of doing the right things, but in very bad ways. And he kind of left me out of it to work out for myself, which, uh, you know, and I guess, you know, you never learn how something works until it stops working, until it doesn't work. So I learned how to do research by by spending a lot of time not being able to properly do research. And I think that's, that's a kind of a lesson. And I also say that, like, we all do research in different ways. You know, if I have any advice or wisdom to share, such as it is. One, another thing I always tell new students is, like, you know, we do research in different ways and different things work in different ways for us. And uh, I found myself a very unfocused researcher, very unstructured researcher, you know? I can point to one specific thing that actually changed how I do research. And it changed, completely changed and turned me almost overnight from being a disorganized researcher to being a proper, better researcher. And it was as simple as a Christmas present of a diary because I discovered something about myself that I never knew. And now is like so intrinsic to me, it's hard to believe I never knew it, which is that I'm a list maker and I need to make lists. (laughs) And what was missing was I needed to have a structure. I needed to write to take a diary and every day put down lists of bullet points to do. And I needed to take them off the list. And I needed on one hand the structure to make me lay out what I needed to do. And on the other hand, I needed the satisfaction of taking things off the list. Yeah. And that to me was and I, I joked that, like that made such a big difference. The only way I could thank the person who gave me the diary was to marry the gratitude for this, <laughs> you know. As I did. Uh, you know, for this is making such a difference to my research because it is. It was the thing that was missing, and it's not everybody is an obsessive list maker. But I was an obsessive list maker who didn't know they were an obsessive list maker. You know, so yeah. and like so, I did my PhD in four and a half years. And like basically everything that went into my thesis was generated the last 18 months after that diary arrived, which is a bit of, a, <laughs> a, a bit of a, maybe a, a raw admission to make, but it's, it's, it's pretty true. I actually, at the very end of my PhD, I had an accident, which almost put an end to my, certainly put my, an end to my lab work for, uh, for a living while, which was, I um, I think I'm probably one of the only people in Ireland who can say they, were, they suffered acrylamide poisoning from electrophoresis. What so exactly? Yeah, I, I suffered acry- it's a very rare conditioning condition to get acrylamide poisoning because I was doing electrophoresis. I did as freezes gels, where we you're clamping plates, glass plates between kind of clamps to make a frame, and then you're pouring into gel material to solidify to separate your proteins on. And the gel material is very toxic. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, this this frame I was using kept leaking, so you had to keep tightening plates. And I was wearing gloves, obviously, but I had a blister on my thumb from all the fighting with the screws. And one day, I was twiddling that the screws, trying to get it to tighten, and the glove burst, and my blister burst. I didn't think too much about it, but I went away. It was you know the day after. I think we went. My now wife we went down to West Cork for a weekend, and I woke up Saturday morning. My arm wouldn't move, and I had big red blotches all around my arm. And I went to a doctor, put me on antibiotics, just an infection, so that was fine. But kind of cleared up a lot of it but i discovered i couldn't move my thumb my thumb was paralyzed so i had to go to cuh and they were fascinated by the idea of this person you know appearing with a paralyzed thumb you know and they and, they, and i th- they said we're working with any dangerous substances and they i said this stuff called acrylamide and it was again pre-internet days so i can picture them going off to look at these big chemical reference books you've got acrylamide poisoning of the thumb so they had to put me under general anesthetic and i have a scar on my thumb from where they opened it up so basically my arm then was wrapped up in bandages after this operation. So I had to uh, stop lab work and write up my thesis. One added complication is it's my right hand. So I had to write up my thesis with my left hand, which is additional.
0: I was just going <laughs> to say that's probably the worst thing to happen in like the last stage of your PhD is like for, for especially the write-up stage.
1: I know particularly if you're right-handed and you suddenly injured your right hand. So that was that was how it ended. Up. So, so anyway, I, I I submitted, I defended, and, and I had at that stage got a, a temporary postdoc position for a year on a grant I got myself, and then a temporary lecturing position came up when my supervisor retired in in ninety nine and and uh, sorry ninety six. I started my PhD in nineteen ninety, and then uh, in ninety nine became a permanent position. I've been there since, so I ended up in court by accident, and it was thirty years ago almost. Almost today. Wow! November ninety, I came to Cork. So it's almost my Cork anniversary. <laughs> I, I came down to, to live in Cork. Yeah.
0: You don't really have that much of a Cork accent, though. You know, you've kind of kept your Dublin. No.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it kind of varies depending on what company I'm in. I, mean, I still have, have like, I have two sisters who live in Dublin. I have uh, a brother in Donegal and, a, you know, a brother and sister in Wales and Switzerland. So we're kind of an international family with very mixed up accents. At this point. <laughs>
0: I'm going to just say, you know, looking back on your journey and, you know, thanks for, you know, talking me through all that, because it's so interesting. But I'm wondering, obviously, your PhD supervisor played a key role in being a mentor for you. Um, but Are there any other key mentors or or what do you think is the importance, I suppose, of mentorship, especially when you're at such an early stage in your career?
1: Yeah, I did have, I think it's important to have a number of different mentors. Like I had in DCU, DCU, our, the program that we did biotechnology, it's very different at the time. I've been external examiner and I been back to DCU and I've given talks to graduates a number of times. So I still maintain uh, I have a great affection for DCU as my alma mater. But it started off, it was a really good, it was in pre-internet days and, and I always say our textbook was the literature. We spent all our time in the library reading papers. Mm-hmm. It was a very literature, literally, you were learning from the latest papers coming up in the days where doing that was much harder than it is today. So I think the attitude in DCU was, was particularly keen, kind of getting me into a certain kind of mindset of, of, of doing science. Um, like, as I say, my supervisor was a, a great, gentle presence, let's put it that way, a nurturing and encouraging presence, who, who gave me far more leeway than I think most supervisors would have given, given other students, you know, let's put it that way, to, to make their own mistakes and re- learn the hard way. I think it's important to have, as well, kind of what you might call guardian angels. Like I had a kind of a senior professor in UCC who was actually was involved in funding my research. And while he wasn't my supervisor, he was at various points, my head of school, and my my dean and things like that. And he was a very supportive presence right through my career. I had a good relationship with him and he was a good source of advice on kind of bigger picture things than my research. It wouldn't have been to do with research. It would have been more to do with my academic career. And what do I do next? And if I needed a reference for something or I needed a, a pointer or how to approach a particular problem, mm. you know, so you can scientific mentors but you can have sort of broader academic guardian angel type mentors as well which i think is important you know uh somebody like that would have a a very big influence you know so i think i've you know another uh, person i'd claim to be a mentor was like actually he was the editor-in-chief of the first journal that i published and i'm now editor of the international Dairy journal and he he's in canada and for some reason, at an early stage, we met in the late 90s at a conference and, and he was always a great advisor and a great nurturer and a great person to supply references from from a distance. So, if, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's down the corridor from you who's a mentor, you can somebody who's on the other side of the world who's a mentor, you know. So I think it is important to know who you can turn to and who you can get advice from when you need it. And I just definitely been a few of those kind of presence in my life, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, from the, even the, just this podcast series alone and the, the amount of researchers I spoke to in such different areas of science, I, I just think it strikes me how wonderful the scientific community really is that you can have mentors who are just really looking out for you and have no, like you said, they're not necessarily intrinsically linked with your research, but, you know, like the the, the editor in Canada and, you know, the dean yeah. in, in UCC, yeah. really, they just have your best interests and hearts and they, they just want to see you do well. I think it's
1: important, you know, to be able to 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 have people you can turn to like that, you know. I think one of the things in Ireland as well is like, you know, Ireland is a kind of unique academic system in some ways. I always think compared to other, like if you compare the UK or the US, I always think we have a very flat system in society in general. You know, there's very few layers. You know, it's very easy to make contact with somebody. It's very easy mm. to reach out. You know, people don't tend to. You know, I always think there's a lot more rigidity in in other systems to kind of prevent somebody at the start of their career from interacting with somebody at at a much later stage, you know, much more formality to that. Which I think is, you know, it's it's like it's a reflection of the kind of attitude for better or for worse. I always think, you know, people who visit Ireland often get amazed by the ease with which we can... Most people want to get to a certain, not most people, but in academia, for example, you know, you can get a minister to show up to, to, to talk at something. You know, I remember organising a summer school once and it was partly funded by the Department of Agriculture. And Simon Coveney, who was a minister at the time, was in Cork and his department, who's was the Minister for Agriculture, his department had funded it. And we mentioned to him, because he was in UCC, that, that this programme that he had indirectly funded was kicking off at international students. And he came in and he gave them a fantastic opening address and the students were like, that's the Irish Minister for Agriculture, just for a PhD. <laughs> How can a minister to to talk to a You know, they're just kind of bamboozled by the fact, you know. And I think, you know, academia is a bit like it's slightly more informal and less hierarchical than it is in other countries. And I think that's largely to our to our benefit.
0: Yeah, I know, I agree. And um, I suppose this is, you know, a good, a good point in our conversation. I suppose to bring in in your research in the whole area of food science and and dairy science. And as I'd mentioned to you before, you know, I grew up on a farm from an agricultural background. My dad is an organic dairy farmer we supply <laughs> glenisk yogurts and and milk and um, so he'll be delighted if I got that in there and um, and you know probably my whole family would laugh if they heard me talking about milking or dairy because I'm probably the worst farmer of the family I really uh fourth so been you know the times are tough <laughs> when dad is calling me down the yard but you know I think when I saw your research I was like this is so interesting because this is my my family's livelihood essentially is is dairy processing is is grass to glass as, as they as they call it you know so talk to me about the whole area of food science and I know you're particularly interested in the dairy business and then I suppose where your research then fits into that.
1: Okay, so um, by the way, as you spoke, I was just thinking, God, it's like we were swapped at birth or something. You know, it would have made much more sense if you'd ended up doing type of research that I'm doing and vice versa, you know.
0: I know I think I think my dad would have been happy with that but no
1: <laughs> it was an irony as I said that a guy from the from Glasnevin on the north side of Dublin ended up studying cows having only ever seen them from the distance in the past, you know? <laughs> like I guess why I was taken on to do my PhD was like it was a problem to do with proteins and enzymes and my degree was in proteins and enzymes and industrial applications proteins and enzymes so that's why it was a fit maybe a slightly orthogonal or indirect fit, but why I was hired because it was a particular enzyme-based problem. And what I discovered about immersing myself in food, and I kind of touched on this earlier, like it's like, it's easy to take food for granted because it's everywhere. It's, it's But every single food ingredient, every single food product, every meal, like is a hugely complex scientific entity. I always say that like interacting with food, food is the most complex scientific thing we do every day other than being alive. You know what I mean? If you think about it that way. And, but we kind of take it for granted. We think that's not science, it's just food, you know? And, but yes, it is because all food has come from biological materials essentially, you know? And, and it, we could be here all night if we start talking about, you know, the whole idea then of putting that against people saying, you know, well, we, we want our food without chemicals. And I say, Food is chemicals. Everything in food is chemistry. You can't have food without chemistry, you know, and, you know, and, and processing and things. And, you know, these are topics I feel fairly strongly about. That's why I wrote this book, Molecules, Microbes and Meals, which is trying to explain that to a kind of a broader audience that, you know, science is not mutually exclusive of food and that, that science is not a danger of food science is the heart of food you know. And, and that what motivated me and why I give a lot of public talks is, is trying to destigmatize food science because I think that there is an unfair kind of a bias that like food should be art it should not be science but to me, food is intrinsically and inherently science. And I've even been interested in one of the books I'm working on at the moment. It's going out next year. is like The Handbook of Molecular Gastronomy, a hugely ambitious project I've been working on for years and with some colleagues in France, including Hervé Thies, who's the godfather of molecular gastronomy, also Roisin Burke, who's from Technological University of Dublin. And, and it's really at the interface of the art of food and the science of food. And it's like articles by food scientists and physicists and chemists and chefs. And, you know, so it's 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 because I just think that, you know, we need to break down these barriers, these artificial ideas, that that food is something that that's separate to science. So that's kind of, I guess, where I came in. And like, like from a dairy viewpoint, I just think milk is a biological material. Milk is a hugely complex biological material. It's 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 a processed form, if you want to put it crudely, of blood, you know, which is the only thing that's produced by nature. If you want to put it this way, that's intended to be consumed. You know, if you think about it, everything else we've made a decision to consume, but our bread to make it more suitable for consumption. But milk is, is nature's true food in many ways. And, it, and, and, and it's designed for, you know, the most vulnerable stage of life, you know, whether it's a baby or a calf. So therefore, you know, it's, it's not surprising. It's full of complex biological materials. Whether it be white blood cells, which is one area I study, proteases of lysosomes in, in white blood cells. Whether it's, it's the protein structures, which have evolved into very complex structures, particularly called casein micelles, which are partly designed to supply nitrogen and peptides and protein, partly designed to, to carry calcium. So, and there's, there's loads of enzymes. Like one of the enzymes I studied from early on was an enzyme called plasma. Unlike for biochemists, plasmin has a particular significance, which is a part of the blood clotting mechanism. It's a, and a complex blood system, but plasmin is hugely significant. All blood system is present in milk and it breaks down protein and it's, it's always present. So, kind of indigenous or native um, bovine enzymes is something that I've studied before I studied where I started my PhD and I've retained my interest uh, because there's just so many things we still don't know about milk considering how much we do with it there's still always things to do which is a great way to be in a science field and one of the other things i really like and you know i think you know it's a great starting point it's the point that dairy science or food science in general but dairy is you know it's kind of backwards to learn so most disciplines we make scientific discoveries and then we turn them into things that are useful whereas in food science we've not had to make useful things for thousands of years because people have been making butter in ireland they're it and bogs for whatever reason, for a very long time, uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks were able to make cheese and yogurt. And before anybody had any idea about a microbe or an enzyme or protein, people have just been doing this stuff. Yeah, you know, and they've been making it safer by heating it. And it's literally that the, the, the science is still catching up with the art. You know, it's still understanding. You know, how can you start off with one raw material and end up with all these different products called cheese, which are Made by similar principles, but thanks to biology, tiny differences in enzymology and in chemical reactions, and in the microbiology, the, the cultures we've added, the cultures that have come in from the environment where the cheese is made, result in all these all these different varieties. So, for somebody who's interested in biology and somebody who's interested in particular in proteins and enzymes, dairy is an incredibly rich topic. get stuck into you know and i always like i you know so my interests have revolved around proteins and enzymes for a start but in particular then how you build because i always say milk is a bit like because like lego it's a box of blocks Mm -hmm. and if you take the yellow blocks and you put them together in one way you make butter if you take the blue blocks and put them together in another way, you make cheese. And the red blocks make yogurt. And it's all about how do you assemble them? And like that's simple, you know, in, in some ways to do because we've been able to do it for a very long time as an art, as I said. But the science behind it is, is hugely complex. We're still unraveling, you know. So so I'm interested in how milk as a raw material, particularly from proteins and enzymes, viewpoint. your point, what happens to it when we process it, so whether it's inactivation or whether it's fermentation or drying, and how that that kind of shift from the raw material through the process influences then the texture and the structure and the properties and the final product. You know, I suppose other features of my career is I've been a naturally, I don't know if you, what's the right term, scientifically gregarious person. I like to collaborate with people. I've had projects involving microbiology and, you know, projects involving food safety and projects that are very physics based or chemistry based or, or ingredients based or product based because I tend to get involved in a lot of different projects as a collaborator and bring something to it. And then I learn something new by interacting with other people. So most of my PhD students over the years have been co supervised with colleagues, I have colleagues that I've co-supervised, you know, loads of students with over the years. And like one of the unique features and a great strength, I think, of the, the Irish system is the community is kind of interlocked and interconnected. And a particularly important relationship for us in UCC and in the food space or the agri-food space is our relationship with Chagos. Chagos operates the Walsh Fellowship Scheme, where people can do their research in the Chagosk centres and the big dairy centres in Formoy, you know, about 30 kilometres from Cork. And they can do PhDs, but they're registered in the university. So, like, probably at least half of my, I don't know, 30-something PhDs so far have been Watch fellow studying in Moorpark. And that's a great way to be involved in, because you can have a much larger group then that you could manage on a day-to-day basis in the university lab. You know, and many of those students have now gone on to be researchers themselves in Chaga. So you like have the second generation students starting to come along. So I've, I've been involved in lots, well, I don't know, 50 or 60, I suppose, between master's and PhD programs over the years. But nearly all of them or most of them have been co-supervised. Yeah, But a kind of a core, I suppose, strength of what I bring to it is kind of the, the proteins and enzymes side of it. I'm probably rambling here, but I hope I gave them flavour, no pun intended. It's hard to avoid the puns so when you're talking about food, you know, yeah. flavour of the purpose, <laughs> you know.
0: No, I appreciate a good pun. Um, yeah, because I had, you know, read a bit of your book and um, the Molecules, Microbes and Meals. And, you know, there's some interesting parallels, which I suppose I, I, I didn't know, but it's interesting when you, when you kind of write it out so starkly, like you write that, you know, every kitchen essentially is a lab and every, you know, meal is an experiment. And
1: certainly as an I cook.
0: <laughs> so can you cook, actually? That's the question I was going to ask you.
1: Uh, no. <laughs> And it's like one of the ironies of like, I don't really cook. I mean, Doreen Allen once described me or has habit of describing me as a food scientist who couldn't boil an egg. And that's kind of, you know, a fair reflection of, and I I have a very, I have very simple food tastes and preferences as well. Like, you know. (laughs) not an experimental eater. So for me, kind of food as a science is kind of quite divorced from food as a way of life, which maybe I don't know, maybe that's part of how I approach it because it's it's kind of slightly more distant or something. I don't know. But it is, it's a bit ironic. I'm not a foodie. I'm definitely the food science.
0: Yeah. Food scientist is not a foodie. That's pretty funny. That's
1: like and, and the other thing is people say, Oh, you're a food scientist. So how much calcium should I be having in my diet? You know, or how much should I be getting more fiber? And I go, I don't know. That's nutrition. You know, I always say food science and nutrition are two very closely related disciplines. In our schooling UCC we have both, but I always say food science is everything that happens up to the point at which you swallow the food. So it's how it's where it comes from, how it's prepared, how it's processed, how it tastes. The minute you swallow it and it does something to your body, that's nutrition. And I don't know anything about nutrition. Yeah. So that's you know, so that's how I differentiate nutrition is food science from the neck down. You know, so um, we kind of put it that way, like you know, um,
0: so, so talk to me about, you know, uh, food processing. And I suppose the modern world now of, of processed food and everyone, like you said, people are like, oh, I don't want food with, my, with chemicals in it. But, you know, food is made up of chemicals. And, you know, talk to me a little bit about the food processing side of it, which I think you are interested in as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this has been a big part of it. It's transformation. And anything we do to raw material, transform it, is process So when people say to me, we don't want our food to be processed, I go, well, everything is processed. But there's different interpretations of what processing means. And and this is a very... It's a very contentious issue, and I have people have very strong views on that. And I've learned, I guess, a little bit to be a bit wary about it because I've given, you know, some public talks or I've been uh, harangued, let's put it that way. I published a piece in The Conversation last year, kind of in defence of processed food, let's say, attracted a mixed response. I've got into a few rows on Twitter over the topic of, you know, and when I published Molecules and and Meals, there's a certain guy, you know, I was invited on, radio interviews and stuff that this guy is going to tell us processed food isn't actually bad for us. You know, it's like, you know, let's the sacrificial lamb. Let's bring this guy in and then give out about processed food. But to me, like processing is is the transformations that we apply to food. And the first reason we transform and one that often gets left out of conversation, which is the primary reason for most of what we do, is to make it safe, because most food no, I won't say most food's not safe, but everything that makes food rich for us makes it rich for bacteria or other undesirable things to grow in. We process it to make it safe. We process it to make it last longer. We process it to give it variety. We process it for thousands of years. It's not something new that food industry have come up with. We process it by heating it to make it safe. We process it by drying it to reduce water activity. We process it by fermentation. To fill it up with desirable microbes and to ideally produce substances whether it be alcohol or acid that that inhibit other negatives you know so you know processing is something very natural and i think it's been it's because like to me processing is a is a fundamentally a a kind of a a set of processes and principles you apply and people say we don't want chemical preservatives in food but i say for thousands of years we've been putting things like sugar salt alcohol acid the reason these are all there is they're chemical preservatives. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you say you don't have any chemical preservatives, you take all those off the table. And today, yeah. I think the discussion about processed food is it's, it's become very contentious. It's become very, as I've discovered, kind of the hard way a few times. You know, people are very entrenched using us and Like it's really when a lot of people talk about processed food, they're not actually talking about what to me processing is, which is kind of things I've talked about. It's a nutritional judgment it's about too much fat or too much salt or too much sugar in your food and i just think it's the terminology is and i think that's dangerous because it makes us think the processing is inherently a bad thing whereas processing is you know what's between us and unsafe unreliable uh, food if you're any of your listeners are interested there's a uh, one and a half minute video by the institute of food technologists in the u.s a professional body uh, but it's called a world without food science and it's yeah. phenomenally impactful. I show it at, at open days and things all the time because it really explains what food would be like if we didn't know how to process it and make it safe, what the world would be like. Yeah. And it's it literally, it's in black and white this bleak dystopian vision you know that goes into color and happy people because of the, the successes of food science and you know i think food processing obviously there have been mistakes as there have been in areas of all areas of science and you know how better to do things we've maybe added too much salt or overheated things or you know but food science is a much more sophisticated discipline than it was when people were doing these things in pre-science days you know so I just I just worry about the fact that that people kind of reject anything that has a scientific kind of aura around it when it comes to food, and I think that's kind of it's a pity to me. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, well, no, it's it's good to make that distinction, and I, and I think even the distinction you made between food science and nutrition science or nutrition nutritionists yeah. is, is really important as well. And um, but on the kind of food processing thing, one thing that I'm really interested in is you mentioned in your book as well about the NASA scientists and that they have had to. <laughs> had this ultra food processing, essentially, because they're up in space and they they want to have their astronauts to have the most nutritionally balanced meals. So talk to me a little bit about that.
1: It's amazing. One of the, the things I, I talk, you know, often asked question like what 19th century Frenchman made the biggest contribution to, to food processing, you know? And this is I'll get to NASA in a second. But and, you know, people tend to guess Pasteur i say yeah Pasteur did You know He was pretty important But somebody else Before Pasteur did I, I'd think of And eventually Somebody would come up with it, And that's Napoleon okay. Because Napoleon Back in the day Like wanted to conquer Most of Europe And beyond He marched his armies From the gates of Paris To the gates of Moscow You know Where they were beaten back By the winter In the Russian army And he, One of his big challenges For his imperial ambitions Was feeding his arm So he put up Big sums of money For people to figure out How to preserve food That his army Can take with them Because it wasn't going to be Like did to Russia and be invited in for dinner or stop at McDonald's on <laughs> the way. You know, they had to have, they had to bring their food with them. And this guy called Appert effectively invented canning using champagne bottles initially. But, you know, the idea of putting food in a sealed container, removing the air and heating it to very high temperatures, and it'll last for a long time. So I, I kind of have the outline plan for future book on uh, what I think is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole thing is the development of food formulation, food processing, and two big drivers, which are war and exploration. You know, making food stable and safe for extreme environments, let's put it that way. Like, I mean, even like processing food to bring it across the Atlantic, to fuel naval voyages, fuel naval campaigns has been a big a big driver throughout history and NASA fits into the logical modern day inheritor of that kind of spirit. It's appropriate we're talking about this because it's one of the parts of Science Week as it is we've been talking about is baking in space. And there's a show I've been involved in that that's still running. There's one at the end of November in Cork live uh, being broadcast. But you know, talking about food for NASA, because NASA, you know, it's an extreme environment. You can't have the slightest hint of safety. I mean, if somebody gets food poisoning in space, that's not a good thing. They have to be really carefully nutritionally balanced. You, they need to be light. They need to be flexible. They need to have like very specific requirements like no crumbs. There can't be crumbs floating yeah. off of zero gravity and getting stuck in a, in a piece of equipment in space. So NASA has been a huge catalyst for food science. And like a simple example, is they invented a system back in the, to the 50s and 60s called HASA, which is hazard analysis of critical control points, which is to break down a process or an environment in very logical steps and identify where the critical food safety risks are, and then identify and put in place measures to control and mitigate. You go into every food environment in Ireland, now you find a HASA plan. You go into a, you know, your local takeaway or chipper and you'll see a HASA plan behind because that's the kind of the philosophy of making safe food preparation. So, you know, things that NASA developed for space, we're now taking advantage of in very mundane environments, let's put it that way. So, yeah, it's, you know, we've been interested in, I talked in Baking in Space about, is 3D printing.
0: I, would, I was just about to ask you, that was my next question.
1: So 3D printing is, you know, something that's been fun. I published a paper in Journal of Food Engineering about three years ago now, that has been one of the most cited and one of the most kind of tweeted and popular in different ways papers have been involved in. Although to us, it was a kind of piece of research which was fun. It was about, could you 3D print processed cheese? Which we were asked by a company, could cheese be made into printable material? And I have a PhD student now, Megan Ross is doing her PhD on, on 3D printing of dairy substances. And we just think it's a really it's a niche, it's a quirky aspect of food science, but like it's a kind of a logical outgrowth of my interest in making structures from food and understanding, you know, because 3D printing is all about, right, can we take different ingredients, mix them in different ways, and shape them into a whole literally customizable, programmable textures and structures? And I just find that a really fascinating idea. And I always think like it's all about personalized and customized food in particular, like for example, in a vending machine or in a restaurant i don't know maybe in the future in a home domestic environment you know probably not an industrial process a much smaller scale process uh, it's like handmade but robot made if that does that sounds vaguely sinister actually but it's, it's kind of you know, it's it's um, help helping handmade and yeah i mean i always think 3d printing is about taking building blocks and making a structure and then you can decorate the structure however you want. You can put in whatever nutrients or flavors you want. And one thing that we know about dairy ingredients, they're building blocks. So it's a new way to, you know, and it's like you use 3D printing to build a house and that's the structure. And That's what dairy is good at. And then you decorate the house however you want by putting whatever flavor and nutrients. You can picture hypothetically like going up to a vending machine and saying, well, today I want something that's soft, chewy, chocolate flavored and high in folic acid. And you press the button and <laughs> <laughs> and it shoots it that's people are looking at this kind of thing now and it's not you know i remember hearing a presentation by a professor from new zealand talking at a conference i spoke at about 3d printing and he said like you know it's, it's small you know it's not going to replace conventional technologies but he said in the, f- in the future one percent food is 3d printed it's a lot of food <laughs> so if you put it yeah. in that context you know it gives it a certain and, and like and we can be sort of you can joke about it and, you know, but first of all, it tells us a lot about structure and how proteins assemble into structure, which is, is fundamentally based on how you can manipulate structures in different ways, which maybe sheds new light on other other kind of aspects. But but there are a lot of very deadly serious parts to 3D printing research. Like, like for example, a lot of EU funding went into a project, we weren't involved in it, it came out of Germany, um, about 3D printing applications for nursing homes and for hospitals. And particularly for people with conditions like dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, who in other circumstances might be fed very unappealing, unexciting kind of pastes and purees, where you could 3D print something that looked like a steak and tasted like a steak, but was designed to have a structure that was much more digestible and palatable to somebody with, with chewing difficulties. Wow. so there's a lot of rest in being able to apply it and then the idea is that it'll be such a flexible process that you could have 10 different steaks produced in a fairly short time in a kitchen but they all had a nutritional profile tailored to the needs of individual people because this one needs a bit more calcium this one needs a bit more vitamin d this, this person if you know what i mean so it's infinitely customizable so it's an interesting certainly part of part of the research are involved
0: and like how do you do that like what do you feed into the 3D printer
1: it's, I mean there's two two main inputs one is computer program that, that tells it what shape you know because it's like an, an extruder it's a bit like a you know a regular printer except it moves in three dimensions and you're extruding in our case maybe from a syringe or like a nozzle to food so it's just it's a recipe then what you put into it so we did it with processed cheese you know just molten processed cheese that you're able to make into different shapes and show that you could reconstruct it and rebuild it. But like at the moment, my student is looking at mixtures of milk protein, you know, with different pH values and ionic strengths and minerals and looking how, you know, trying to kind of do it at a molecular level, kind of trying to build up structures by trying to put different mixtures in and trying to see do these print and do these not print and how can we optimize their, their printability, if that makes sense. And we've also got a, like, we're looking in the same project at engineering aspects, we've got the social science aspect, they're doing focus groups and surveys of consumers. And we're partnering with an institute in Finland to compare international perspectives on on what consumers think about 3D printing. So it's an interesting topic. It's
0: so it's so fascinating because I I suppose I didn't really understand what I mean, it's edible, you know, as in what you're putting in is is a food. So you're getting out of food essentially at the end of it. It's just changed or modified. And I suppose the other question I wanted to ask you, which ties into your other book is, you know, you've written a book on science communication and talk to me mm-hmm. about that. And, and the fact that, you know, you know, you're research communicator of the year uh, for, for 2020 for UCC. And what, what is your opinion, I suppose, which is quite topical at the minute on the role of the scientists in communication, especially with the pandemic that we're currently uh, in?
1: No, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a really good question. and something I'm happy to, to share a few thoughts on, I guess. Like if I go back, Kind of maybe just before I answer that, maybe just to outline I've had a kind of a peculiar kind of a shaped career which communication has been a theme of because I, I, as I indicated, I became a PhD student, I took over from my supervisor, and for the first kind of number of years of my career, I built, I did the conventional researcher, young academic thing. I built a research team. I got my own students. I built my own lab. I got grants. I built collaborations. I published, you know, quite a lot of papers. And then in like 10 years, from 96 to about 2006, in 2006, I did something which a lot of people thought was kind of crazy at the time, which was, um, I, I left research essentially, or I, I cut down certainly my research activity to become Dean of Graduate Studies at UCC. Uh, and I went over to, to the administrative side of the university. And it was because, like, not only because, but like early on in my career, I became kind of very interested in the idea that there are so many things we expect research students to do. We never exactly tell them how to do it, how to design an experiment, how to, to, you know, how to write a paper, how to design a poster, how to, to give a presentation. They kind of are expected to learn, you know, the apprenticeship idea, learn on the job. And in the late 90s or early 2000s, I introduced a course in UCC for PhD students, which is trying to save everybody time by teaching them some of the basics about how to do research. Right. And I guess it evolved over time, kind of, you know, because I had students from every discipline. And it was very hard to come up with a course, kind of touch out to research and everything at once. And mm-hmm. you know, I was too ambitious, certainly. But what I discovered was the thing I could kind of focus on that everybody found useful was communication. So the course basically gradually evolved into of course, it was all about communication. It's still running now, 20 years later. I think it was actually the first officially accredited postgraduate training module. It's only in UCC and one of the first in the country. And now there's plenty of them for people as far as structured PhDs. Um, but I became very interested in, you know, how do we communicate? And I suppose that led me into a broader interest about how do we prepare students for um, careers in research, or at least for their degree in research. And I became Dean of Graduate Studies and I did a lot of training and workshops, but kind of communication was always at the heart of it. So I spent about 10 years between being Dean, as involved in other administrative roles in UCC, including being our Director of Quality for a year. And then in 2016, again, like it was a 10 year, 10 year, I don't know how many years yet, but I kind of decided, you know, I kind of had a, Kind of another strange intervention in my life, let's put it that way, it's strange. I had an accident in UCC. I came into UCC on the 15th of January, I think it was, 2016, and it was black ice and I got out of my car into car park and I slipped on the black ice and I broke my back. Oh, God. And I, sp- I spent 12 weeks in a big metal frame unable to bend my back and it was it's like a cliche I always thought these are the kind of things you, you know you don't you hear about you, but you don't really believe that something like that kind of changes how you look at things but it kind of did because I had to lie at home on my back for kind of five weeks, trying to work, you know, while kind of immobile, and it was, it was, and I'd never been out of, I'd been working very hard and very busy for years and years, and i never had to stop before. I'm forced to stop like this, and it just made me think. And I just decided, you know what? I think I want to refocus what I do, and I thought about certain things. I had options on, and decided that I wanted to kind of change, change what I wanted to spend my time on because various things I was involved in were coming to an end anyway. So I was at a kind of a branch point. So I decided what I wanted to do was go back to research, build back up my research. So my research kind of went like that I'm mm. back up, into, you know, having about 10 students at a time now between UCC and Chiagos, uh, which is unusual, I guess, to go through research cycles um, and back teaching. because I really enjoy teaching and I want to do more of it again. But the thing that I've been missing I said for years I'd love to do is write books. And put this communication stuff into practice that i've been thinking about for so long so the first book was the one on on food science for non-scientists to try and defend food science and then i wrote a book i've been teaching this course on science communication for so long and i really believe that communication is it's almost overlooked and it's like no piece of research is complete until it's been effectively passed on recorded and passed on because it doesn't have an impact until it's been communicated. You can do the best piece of research in the world, but if you don't tell anybody, what's the point in doing it? Or if you tell people in such a way that they're not enthused or they don't understand the significance, of it, you can't explain it correctly. It can't have an impact. It can't do what the point of research was, which is to change something. So I wanted, to you know, I've been teaching these courses on it for years, and I wanted to kind of put it in a book, which I did. You know, and I think, as you said, you know, it, it's really it's timely. The book was written pre-COVID, <laughs> although it came out in September. You know, it was in proofs stage before the pandemic hit its publication was delayed by the pandemic if you look at the index COVID doesn't appear in it at all you know but I think COVID is great it, it's really put the focus on because I think you know and I've been involved I've given a few talks I'm giving a webinar next week in the states about communication in the era of COVID you Now because it's like science worked at a certain pace to translate research from the bench to the impact But that's never had to be as short and as fast as it is now. And how do we do that effectively while still safeguarding the standards of science? You know, there's never been such a sudden and urgent refocusing of scientific endeavor. Like... Think of the number of people who are working on COVID-related research today who have never even heard of COVID this time last year. You know, that's just mind-blowing. How many research plans have just been put to one side to focus on this? And if you think about it then, like, there's a deluge and the statistics for the number of papers being published related to COVID is just absolutely, it's phenomenal, right? But, like, like, there are standards and there are safeguards in science that have to remain like peer review, that maintained quality of science? How do you still do that in the face of an avalanche? How do people sift through all this research to find the key things? How do you stop something being blown out of proportion or being blown out of context by politicians who are willing to grab on things and, for, and twist research. So everything that's happened in research, it's like a microcosm of a lot of issues around science communication, how peer review works and about how political interference of research and about translation of research. Suddenly everything is put into a pressure cooker and turned up to a thousand degrees. You know what I mean? Like it's even something as simple as peer review. Who, who's reviewing all these papers? I know who, who is because the people who are probably most fit to review the papers are the people who are the most busy doing the research at the same time themselves. You know, so, so I think it's 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 kind of amplified, and we've seen lots of examples of papers that have been published and retracted afterwards. You know, they make a lot of fuss to get published, but not many people know the fact that they've been retracted. So it's it's a bit scary. It's, obviously it's very scary, even you know, to think about its implications to science communication. I think is is just been an interesting lens to work we can think of so many irish irish scientists you know some of whom have been on your own podcast would never have dreamed of I think of the people in ireland who who last christmas and sitting down to dinner would never have dreamed they'd be household names and appearing on the late late show and appearing on the news i know that this is going to be their life you know but i i think the standard of science communication in ireland has been really good I think Ireland has a really good track record in science communication. I think we've got some really good communicators out there who've, who've done us proud, who've done a really good job at making it accessible. Because it's, it's one of the other things I'm fascinated about communication is you could be a, a COVID researcher in whatever aspect, whether it's medical or whether it's logic. On a Monday, you could be standing up and talking to, you know, experts who absolutely are interested in the molecules and the, the structures. And the next day you could be talking to the government department. The next day or Nefc. The next day you could be talking to patients. The next day you could be talking to medics. The next day you could be talking to the media, and like scientists need to have today a hugely they always had, but COVID has all emphasised this this diverse toolkit of communication skills. Because if you can only talk to scientists, then it's very hard for your research to make an impact. You know, so so researchers are being bombarded requests for information from all kinds of different audiences to require all kinds of different communication strategies which i think is also you know again it's something that's been coming for a long time that's just been turned up to a left you know in recent months by the circumstances
0: I, I think that point is so important in that there's so many different uh, re- researchers nowadays have to employ different tones and different strategies to communicate their research. Um, and especially with with the public, the way you would speak would be very different to how you would speak at a conference. Um, and, you know, to be equally good at both is often sometimes hard. Um, but I think I think Ireland, like you said, uh, you know, there, there's some great researchers out there who, like yourself, can can do both. And Alan, kind of an, another question I do tend to ask people is, you know, what do you love most about what you do what drives this passion for research and then what do you find um, stressful um
1: what what drives me i think is, is i know this sounds like a cliche but you know it's curiosity you know i think i have a very restless mind i you know I, I like to be involved in lots of things you know what i mean i like the idea that you can make a research career an academic career and if you're lucky enough to get one and obviously I'm, I'm very lucky to have one but to can make it into whatever you want to suit yourself you know what I mean and I've been able to do that and be different things in different flavors at different times and i think that's important to me I think it's but it's it's the idea that no two days are the same that, that no two years are the same that everything changes you know there's very little routine I think I've just as i say a kind of a restless curiosity that i think the research is always kind of satisfied to a certain extent because of the variation you know so it is it's you know and it's it's the rewards I mean it's getting your papers published getting your books published getting good feedback you know if you a person I think a lot of scientists are whether they admit it or not you know they have a kind of a, a certain neediness for affirmation and research is a good environment
0: for that you know? definitely uh,
1: what do I find difficult? You know, I mean, obviously, there's, you get your papers rejected, you get your grants turned down, you get, you know, things, as I say, there are things that have happened to me over the years that have been quite difficult, you know, but usually they've, you know, often the difficulty has been followed by a change in direction, which is a positive. Like I gave the examples of the, the bad move into industry followed by ending up in UCC. The, the, the accident that ended up making me decide to write books, you know, indirectly or directly, you know. So, you know, I think you, you can't make plans because the universe is only going to laugh at you when you do. But you know, it's it's being responsible for others. I think being a mentor yourself, being a supervisor, you know, um, you know, having the responsibility of of trying to guide others to to complete their own research and, and help them solve problems. I think that's that's you know something which you know I think a lot of the times I've been most worried about things is if things aren't worried working for one of my students. Or I'm concerned about something for them. You know, you know, and that's great, and I've always enjoyed doing it. But I think that's an aspect which can be, uh, besides, as I say, the routine knocks, that that life and professional life. And it's not always a better roses, to put it mildly. But, you know, I think you need a certain degree of optimism and a certain degree of positivity to make the most of it. I think if you're an academic, you're in a very privileged position because you have enormous freedom. I think that Irish academics are given huge amount of leeway and freedom. I think sometimes maybe they're given too much. You know, I think that it's a very unregulated environment, but that gives you a privilege and the people should live up to it. Academic rights should be something you continue to, freedom, something that you continue to justify having rather than just being granted as a a license to do whatever you will, you know, but I think that the vast majority of people in Irish academia are are doing a really good job having said that.
0: Yeah. I know I I agree. And and I think this, you know, as I said in the podcast, you know, uh, talking to people like yourself and and others, I think that proves that. But Alan, one of my last questions for you is if you weren't a scientist, if you weren't in the position you are now, and I know as you've talked throughout this this episode, you know, there's many different facets to what you do, but uh, how do you think your life would have ended up or what do you think you'd be doing right now?
1: It's a nice question, but uh, I don't think I'd have been working in industry. I don't think I'd have been happily working in industry. I mean, I remember back in the 1980s, You know when you go And you do these Aptitude tests And you know You fill in these forms, And they tell you What you think you should do With your career Mm. And when I did this And it said You should be a writer Or a journalist And I said No I've got to be a scientist (laughs) You know I kind of dismissed it But I think Inevitably I love writing. I love, in particular in recent years, I've loved the idea of like the two books I've written and there are several more at various stages of work at the moment, right? Because it's kind of a bug that when you, it's like you've lifted the lid off the jar and, and the stuff will keep on, keep on going. But it's like when you're a scientist and you're writing, you're, you're constantly, you know, you're fact checking and you're making everything precise. And there's the liberty of instead of writing a paper or writing a book chapter or a proposal in a very kind of specific way of just starting with a blank sheet and just writing creatively to me is joy. Like, you know, just starting, you know, when I was writing science communication book, it was really, it was because I'd been talking about it and teaching it for several so years, so many years, just sit down and write thousands of words a day off the top of my head. I just felt so liberating, you know? Yeah. So I think that if I wasn't kind of professionally active in science, I'd probably be in some way writing about it or in some way right, involved in the communication. I probably wouldn't have started there 20 years ago or more. But I think that's probably where it have ended up in some way, because I think that's that's the other thing. I I've always liked creativity, you know, and even you no know, doubt things like studying art at school and loving English. you know, I, I love language, I love words, I love jokes and puns. And that's the other thing. Like the books are you know, they're full of jokes and silly references and things that, you know, 99% of people would wouldn't notice this reference to this movie that I've stuck in. But it's just this kind of side of me that I wanted to be able to do. And when somebody does spot it, so they get a kick out of that. Then you know that they've they've recognised that Star Wars reference in there, whatever it might be. And you know that's just the kind of thing that you can't do in in regular science writing. But it's kind of liberating to do that to have a you know, kind of a different expression for your kind of communications uh, interests. That's why I've liked writing and talking for general audience.
0: Well, it's it's lovely to, for you to answer that question with kind of saying that you have merged into the path and you're, and you're doing both. You know, yeah. which is great, but. Alan, listen, it's been wonderful to talk to you and um, I've really enjoyed and I've learned so much about food science, about dairy, about processing and about science communication as well. So, so thanks for coming on to chat to me today.
1: Oh, look, I really enjoyed it. And thanks once again for inviting me. And I'm, I'm very happy to be joining some very exalted company among your previous guests. So I'm <laughs> delighted to be part of this, this uh, and well done on setting it up in the first place.
0: So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.